Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. July 28th, 2020, episode 178, Full Reverse. Hello everyone and welcome, so glad you can join me wherever you are. It's a Tuesday night, something that is a little unorthodox for me when it comes to sliding downstairs to record, but this past weekend I used my available time on Saturday in the bee yard, something you'll hear about a little later, and on Sunday I worked on a home project until late afternoon, and then Sharon accompanied me for the hour-long ride down to Bridgeport Speedway as Corey was racing the inner track at the Kingdom of Speed. That's the tagline for the new Super amazing, incredibly rebuilt Bridgeport Speedway. A little disappointment. Only five cars showed up for Corey's class, which is the smallest car count I can ever recall. It's not even enough cars for a heat race, but it was a tour race and something they call the poker series. So it was important to be there. Nonetheless, Corey won his heat race and the feature against five cars. You know, while there were not a lot of cars there Sunday, he has proven in the past that he can get the job done on that speedway. He's a multi-time feature winner there, and even with the track reconfiguration since they've rebuilt it after last season closed, uh, he looks like he's got the place hooked up. Anyway, the point of all that (laughs) was I didn't get the time to slide behind the microphone until tonight, and well, here we are. As the night, being Tuesday, is unorthodox, so too will be this episode. I've been ruminating on this for quite a while. I'm going to make a change for the show that I'm pretty sure is going to stick, and tonight's program is The Maiden Voyage. The episode's title is Full Reverse, and that's the change. I'm going to completely swap the cadence of the show. I am musing that the quick hit roundtables will be more a more lively way to get things going. And then if you're still around afterwards, we'll cover off the more detailed topics of the episode. And I have not eliminated the local hive report. My plan is to put it at the end. On the local hive report, I'm aware that the local hive report is a love-hate relationship for listeners. Some have shared with me over the years that they simply just skip past it and others hang on the recount for each and every episode. For me personally, I think that some of the best content of of my shows in the past comes from them because I tend to lay out and explain my decision process. And I'm not saying that's why. It's because agree or disagree with me You get to think through the situations that I get myself into and decide what you would do. And I'm hoping you play the game with me. I think the process of evaluation and decision-making with an explanation of why I chose what I choose to do when I choose to do things really illustrates certain ways of doing things and it makes you challenge yourself, hopefully, as to how would you do it or what would you do in that case. I think that's really an important thing to play along with. 
So yes, the local hive report is still in the mix. It's just going to take us out of the episode from now on if the format change sticks. I want to take a moment to do some housekeeping before we start in on the topics and roundtables and such. I do not plug the show much. In fact, some people probably wonder why I don't seem to promote it all. And it dawns on me, as I listen to a lot of episodes, that most of them I don't even give out my email address. I consider myself fortunate that I can swing paying for the show. I don't do advertising and pay all the expenses out of pocket. I like that because it doesn't clutter the program with things like Patreon pleads and such. Now, I don't begrudge those programs that do that stuff. I'm painfully aware of how much it costs to keep this show operational. I'm going to ask you to do one thing for me, though. If you have a moment, take the time to share a comment, pro or con, in your podcast app, in iTunes, in Stitcher, in whatever that may be. The consistent comments by the listeners do help others find the show because the ratings and the comments tend to make podcasts bubble to the top of the recommendation lists. And that, in the end, does something for me which helps with the return on investment. So that's it. Just leave me a comment, if you will. Now, while I'm in housekeeping, I once again will bashfully recognize that some listeners do donate to the show. And specifically, a couple of them lately have donated to help replace my video camera, which, as I said, at $1,000 is a tall task to pull out of the house budget. As to the donations, because I've received some, I have to say thank you. I feel kind of guilty <laughs> in the way that that works, but you know what? I just simply am going to say thanks and move on. It's funny that I'm doing this now at the beginning of the episode because usually it comes to mind as I'm doing the closing comments. So, But this is full reverse. I'm still working on the budget for that. I'm on target for a September-October replacement. And for any of those that have donated, know that I will take that money and it will go directly to that fund. So personal thanks for me on that. One final housekeeping. I do like to hear from you, and if you have something to share or just to say hi, my email address is kevin at bkcorner.org. I do appreciate all the emails come in, and I do my best to reply to everything that pops in as quickly as time allows. Just a same old reminder, if you would, if you have a strange name, please, or a complicated name, please tell me how to pronounce it. I have one from, I'm going to say this because I know you listen, Hannah. <laughs> I think your name is Hannah. And maybe you've written me in the past and you told me how to say your name, but I'm not very good at that. So maybe you could write me in, say hi, and tell me how to pronounce your name. I'm going to store that one for the record. Okay, time to give a quick summary of what's on the show's agenda so we can dive right in. Roundtable number one, cleaning wax. I'm going to relay some recent experience and experimentation that we've been doing. Roundtable number two, beekeepers being essential in these times of COVID. Roundtable number three, clever restaurant tricks. Roundtable number four, bees in the Joshua Tree Park or forest. Roundtable number five, 
Quinn Half, NASCAR star. That one will be fun. Roundtable number six. Yo, bud, smell you later. <laughs> That'll make sense when we get there. For this episode's topics, topic number one, exploring the dynamics of moisture and honey. And topic number two, part two, follow-up of the Nyko Queen rearing. As I mentioned before, we'll close things down with the local hive report. So now, in full reverse, the back of the book is now the front of the house. It's going to take me a while to get used to this. Let's head into roundtable number one. Roundtable number one, wax cleaning. You know, throughout the season, I have talked about this year's objective, which was cleaning a lot of the old comb out of my hives. And as such, we've been putting loads and loads of old, dirty, nasty comb into the wax melter. Wait, Kevin moment. Today, I had a little chuckle because Sharon called it a Max Welter. <laughs> I've done that so many times. It was funny to hear her do it. End of Kevin moment. I like what the solar wax melter does based on the design. It has this upper chamber that you put this old, nasty, funky wax in. And through the heat that comes through the glass, it melts the wax. And the wax, by gravity, flows down the box, which has a slope, and then off the edge and into the pan. Lately, um, we've been collecting wax block after wax block after wax block of this wax. And most of the time, what we do is we put a pan underneath that's like a chafing dish. Sharon, my brilliant and smart, wonderful wife, did something that improved it. When I originally built the solar wax melter, at the bottom, because sometimes when the wax flows, it carries debris down, it will allow some of the slum gum and pieces of dirty comb and cocoons and whatever to go over the edge, and it gets into your wax. The original recommendation that I saw from somebody who created the design that I emulated was to put number eight hardware cloth, and that's what I did. Well, she was smart enough to realize that, you know, if you put a layer of paper towel, it would catch the debris before it went down into the pan. The pan underneath is a typical chafing dish. You could buy them four for a dollar in the dollar store. We don't put water in it we just let it go through and collect and then when it hardens you just pop it out but even still when you do that there's almost always debris in the wax as clean and pretty as the wax is it always has a little bit of propolis in it and somehow that slum gum stuff always gets in there dirty little particles and you know sometimes bees fly and find their way into the solar wax melter because they smell the wax and they end up in there and you have dead bees. So the wax isn't perfect. There's some debris in it. And it requires one more pass if you want it to be squeaky clean. To the point of this round table, I started to look how to perform a finishing filter job that removes all the debris. It leaves the wax super clean. And I found two methods that work so far. I tried one with great success. Now I have, a, like everybody else, old pots and pans in my stash for processing wax. And in the garage, because I don't throw a lot of things out, 
I had an old grid off a metal rack from an old-fashioned refrigerator. And it was a good size that sat over top of the pan. I used an old cake pan that I have in my wax collection. So you've heard me say this if you listen to the podcast. Whenever you do wax work, whatever it is, making candles, melting, double boiler, that stuff has to be committed because it's almost impossible to get the wax out. So grid of metal rack, old-fashioned refrigerator metal rack, an 8.5 by 11 cake pan, and on top of that, I followed a tip from a YouTube video to use door screen. Screen door mesh, the kind that's so fine that bugs can't fly through it. It makes a great filter. During a lunch break this week, I fashioned that over top. I quick grabbed some paper towels. I put it over top of that. And then I put the wax, which had just a little bit debris, on top of that and stuck it in the oven at 200 degrees. How about that? How did it turn out? Mm, yeah. <laughs> the wax melted through the paper towel and the heavy bulk of it went down through the wire mesh from the screen door mesh and into the pan, which did have some water in it. And it's perfect. It's absolutely beautiful. The bad news is mm, the wax <laughs> wicked through the paper towel, which was hanging over, because dumb beekeeper, over the edge of the pot, and it wicked away, and then it dripped down, and it's all over the bottom of the oven. Now I think I lost maybe a half a cup, but getting that wax out of the oven was no mean feat. So what I ended up having to do is pull the wax contraption out of the oven, heat the oven up to 100 degrees, pull the racks out first, and I used a scraper and scraped all the wax when it softened off and then let it pool in the bottom and wiped it out with a paper towel and I got 99% of it. Now what ended up happening is I put a fine glaze all over the bottom of the oven. And <laughs> Sharon went to cook something the other day, the whole house filled up with smoke and it burned off like that. So it was pretty quick. So what's the experiment net net it worked really really well the wax is absolutely perfect now what i have to figure out is how do i keep everything self-contained so it doesn't spill over we were trying to figure this out this afternoon where you don't have to use the oven because it's hot it's 90 degrees out you got the air conditioner running in the house the last thing you want to do is turn the oven on for 20 minutes at 200 degrees and heat up the house even further so what we did was we took that makeshift device and put it in the solar wax melter and just set the wax on top of it and actually melted it inside the solar wax melter we were very careful to prop the paper towel around properly and it worked perfectly so mission accomplished we can actually do it in the solar wax melter. Now, I think there's going to come a time, because today the radiation level of the sun was high. It was 90 degrees. The solar wax melter melted it lickety split. Um, lickety split. I think that uh, that's going to work, but there'll come a time when 
fall and other times where that's not going to work and you'll have to put it in the oven. So I, th I think that was great. So I said there was um, a second way to do this. In our travels, we picked up a bunch of different colanders that had really fine mesh. And what I ended up doing was taking one of my wax pots, like an old pot and pan, and fastening this wire bracket that let this device hang over top of the pot. Now the pot with the colander that I would put, it's very similar in uh, dimension to the screen from the screen door. It's the same fine mesh. So I think I can line that with paper towel and use that device. And that will keep everything self-contained in the pot and that can go in the oven. So that's option number two. So kudos to the person in YouTube who gave that recommendation to use screen door mesh, the kind that you use to keep gnats and noceums and biting flies out. Really good recommendation. I will put a link in the show notes to this roundtable for the inspiration video I found on YouTube. That was the spark for this experiment. So that behind us, let me give one other option and recommendation for filtration. I saw this really well-produced video, and kudos to them for sharing. Bob and Pam from Blue Ridge Honey Company gave a comprehensive look at how they make candles. It is worth the view and appreciation. In the video, Pam talks about the process they use to do their final filtering. They use a cloth described as a white flour sack cloth. I found these cloths on Amazon. They have a 12 pack of 28 inch by 28 inch cloth. They almost look like cloth diaper material or linen napkin inexpensive. It's $18. I think that um, it is similar to the mesh that I just described, but it's made of cotton. And what she does is they have a solar wax, not a solar wax, or a, a large industrial wax melting device. And they've already pre-filtered it, similar to what I talked about by the solar wax melter. And when she opens the spigots, before she puts it into her decanter, she filters it through this cloth to get the final filter. So if you go watch that video, you could see how they do it. And they take you through the end-to-end -end process. It's Blue Ridge Honey, how to make beeswax candles. And there's a link to that also in this roundtable. Roundtable number two, who are you going to call? In these days of COVID and waves of impacts sweeping the nation, it's not implausible to think that some areas will find restrictions, even still. Here in New Jersey, we had a period where everyone was encouraged to stay home through the vast majority of March into April and so on, and no one was out and about. Schools, businesses, shopping outlets were all closed, and only essential services were available. Nowadays, it's a little bit different. New Jersey people are out and about. But back in those days, if you were a normal citizen, <laughs> you were concerned if people were out. You wanted everybody to comply to 
make sure that COVID was not spreading. And if you saw people out, people actually got challenged. Like, what are you doing out? They told you to stay home, that kind of thing. In that guise, there became this word that surfaced in 2020. It's essential. It's now part of the vocabulary of 2020. It typically refers to healthcare workers when you think essential. But in normal circles, there have been decrees of other professions that were deemed essential. As such, there's a recent story from the Associated Press that chronicles some encounters in D.C. with people who turned out to be beekeepers that were summoned to manage reports of honeybee swarms. The article shares a link to an official notice from Mike Matthews in the Department of Energy and Environment in the District of Columbia that assures that beekeepers have been deemed essential. So that's kind of cool. In D.C., and I'm sure in other places, when they looked across all the professions, they decided that beekeepers were essential. It specifically states that, quote, Beekeepers can continue to visit and manage their honeybee colonies at their apiaries, whether they are at their homes or other locations in the district, and respond to swarm calls for honeybee removal, end quote. The collaboration between authorities and beekeepers is kind of cool. It's good to know that the public officials understand the dynamics required to manage colonies and how they serve the public's interests. And I guess um, they really want somebody to take care of the swarm control situation, too. They certainly don't want to do it themselves. Accompanying the statement that I just read, that bees are essential, is of course the guidelines that beekeepers follow proper precautions for social distancing. To that end, I wanted to pivot on a social distancing practice. It mentioned that I presented a short segment to the Raritan Valley Beekeepers Association last week, and I actually attended their in-person meeting, the first one that we've had since this whole thing is broken. They recently secured an agreement with a country club in their serving district to host their meetings, and the venue was large enough for them to spread the chairs out and keep everyone spaced away from each other. They did a combination in-person, but you had to have a mask, meeting, along with Zoom. And they had a camera up front and the ability to share both the presenter and a slide presentation. So it's kind of cool to see that beekeepers are getting with the times, being inventive, and they're working to bring a little bit of normalcy because it was neat to actually go out outside into public and see other people, especially beekeepers. So maybe this is the new normal for beekeeping education, hard to say. I will have a link that shows some of the work beekeepers were doing with that swarm work in D.C. and a link to the D.C. government website that had posted beekeepers are essential. Roundtable number three, this will be a quick one. Might I suggest some honey with your meal? This is not what you think it's going to be. The year 2020 will be something that I think all of us will hold in a distinct memory for the rest of our lives. I really suspect that there will be punchline jokes that infer what a crappy year it's been. And I see in the comments 
when people look at the euthanized hive, aggressiveness is like, of course, that hive was that way. It's 2020, that kind of sentiment. As odd and challenging as it has been, there are always a few things that maybe get a chuckle out of the situation. And it appears that London's plan for returning to normal included opening the pubs for the 4th of July weekend. We had Independence Day here in the U.S., and the chaps in London were free to go have a pint. Pub owners, restaurant owners, and other businesses, they're trying to find a way to separate patrons. Here in New Jersey, you're not allowed to eat inside of a restaurant. There are only external dining options available to us. But in other places, they're letting people in the dining rooms, but they have to maintain social distance. I've seen restaurants with balloons in the seats, mannequins, and other creative approaches to only open certain places to sit. That helps with one aspect, but what of the employees who come into contact with the patrons all day? There's two dynamics in play. They have to protect themselves, and they have to protect the people they serve. Because if you infect your patrons, that's just not good for business, of course. And you certainly don't want them to be at risk. So it appears that Mr. Frogs, a restaurant in London, it's called Mr. Frogs House of Botanicals, developed a creative way of outfitting their servers with beekeeping suits. The motif in the restaurant is that they have live plants and other things going on, botanical. And the theme of having their people wear full beekeeping suits fits right in. So the waiters and the bartenders of the nature-themed restaurant are decked out in beekeeping attire with white bee pants, jackets, and veils, complete with the netting. What's not to love about that idea? I think that's really cool. I'll have a link to these bars use gas masks, beekeeping suits, and Victorian mannequins to aid social distancing in the show notes. Roundtable number four, Yashu. We know a guy by the name of Joshua, who by my recollection has rarely been called Josh, and everyone calls him Yashu. Every time I see the name Joshua, I think of Yashu. <laughs> what does it have to do with beekeeping? Hmm. A recent article popped up in my feed from CNN News Network indicating that two areas of the Yashua, Joshua Tree National Forest are closed on account of honeybee encounters. The National Park representative shared that parts of the park end up a little dry and honeybees start to seek water, and it results in some situations that I've never heard of. Apparently, the bees are so aggressive to find water that they will seek out water bottles, like people holding the Poland Spring, water dripping from car air conditioners, and just about anything that is wet. I know sometimes bees are nuanced when they lock onto a water source, but this was an extreme I'm not familiar with. Could you imagine you pull up with your car and it's dripping water from the air conditioner and all of a sudden bees start swarming the entire car? It sounds like certain areas of the park are subject to closure, and at the time of the article, some of the trails and campgrounds were also closed. I kind of wonder what the story is with the aggression. 
what did they mean? Did they mean aggression like Africanized bee aggression, or did they mean that bees will present in a large quantity, meaning a lot of bees flying around, and anyone squeamish, individuals who don't like bees, would not appreciate that large presence of our water-seeking friends. I know of the Joshua Tree Forest. We went on vacation a few years back and stayed in Las Vegas. But not being gamblers, we explored the greater area around Lost Wages. And one of the stops we visited was the Joshua Tree Forest. You see, my boys play a video game called Fallout Las Vegas, and one of the pivotal narratives in the game story centered around Searchlight, Nevada, which is near the Joshua Tree Park. We took a ride out one day to find Searchlight, Nevada, and the firehouse, which is part of the story. I won't go into it. But we stopped and bought some honey from a local stand while we were there. And then I kicked in my ulterior motive to head to a remote area of the Joshua Tree Forest. I wanted to see a Joshua Tree. You know, those big, they're, they're shaped like two arms and a, and a tall body cactus in person. And I also had another hope to see if we could figure it out. Because friends of mine who were out in California when 9-11 happened and they stopped all the flights ended up driving back and they described this experience and I wanted to see if I could find it. The dreams came true. It turns out we all agreed in the end that it was one of the coolest things we ever did. We drove out of searchlight, we turned off the main highway and rode out through, I'm pretty sure looking at the map in retrospect, that it was Pinto Basin Road. And we drove out into the middle of the park and the middle of nowhere. We found such seclusion that you could not see any signs of civilization in any direction as far as you could see. You could see for miles. I remember stopping the car and encouraging Sharon and the boys to get out of the car and just leave the doors open. And we stood in the roadway. And we took in the sights for probably 15 minutes recognizing the seclusion. Not a sign of another human being for miles. It's one of those lifetime moments that stick with you. I mean, all you really needed was like, like that buzzard uh, sound, you know, or whatever they, <laughs> that I always make you see in the Westerns. Being who I am, during that vacation... The full week, I wondered if we might encounter any of the local bees in our travels. I had heard that that area of Arizona and parts of New Mexico, Las Vegas, uh, Nevada area, have been taken over somewhat by Africanized bees. Now, when we looked around, it was so dry there that any of the plants you saw, you really didn't see many. I think I saw occasionally here and there. But we were on the lookout. While we were visiting one of the other parks, I think it was Red Rock Canyon, I took a photo of one of the uh, bulletins on one of the park building. It was over to the side on the bulletin board for the park that requested that you report any beehives to the park staff. It stated the reason as, quote, 
The park is trying to locate hives close to our attractions to remove them for everyone's safety, end quote. It went on further to state that they generally do not cause problems, but that they will be searching for water. So there, that's the tie-in. And I didn't even know. I went back and looked at the picture I took of the sign from years ago. So back to the story at hand, I wonder if this happens every year there, or if this is a one-off thing. But given that sign that I took 2016, and now that it's 2020, I bet this happens all the time. The final part, quote from the ranger stating that, quote, it was a big year for bees, end quote. And the good news is they remarked that there have not been any human bee encounters. So as you might imagine, in the show notes, aggressive honeybees at Joshua Tree National Park force multiple campgrounds to close. Roundtable number five. I'm going to switch up the order from the intro agenda in the beginning. This one just popped in. New Jersey Department of Agricultural Bulletin on Unsolicited Seeds coming out of China. The New Jersey Department of Agriculture has been receiving reports of people receiving seeds in the mail from China that they did not order. Sometimes the seeds are sent in packages stating that the contents are jewelry. The answer to all of us is just don't do it. And they don't know that this is going to be restricted to New Jersey, so I'll just take a moment to put this one out there. The bad news about this is it's almost like terrorism. It's known as agricultural smuggling. Unsolicited seeds, as you could probably imagine, are not the way you want to go. They could be invasive. They could introduce diseases to local plants. You never know. Maybe they're harmful to livestock. And then, of course, if you get the unsolicited package from something, maybe there's nefarious powders or whatever, so here's what you do if you receive unsolicited seeds from another country. Do not plant them. <laughs> Duh. And if they're in a sealed package, don't open them. Just leave them sealed. The New Jersey Department of Agriculture wants you to take a photo of that package and then send the photos to them. If you're in New Jersey and you have this occur, you happen to receive these, visit the show notes at bkcorner.org. For this episode and there will be a link to New Jersey Department of Agriculture's webpage with the instructions they're kind of detailed that's why I'm not going to spell them out here on what to do to help them out with this situation roundtable number six smell you later I sit here today full disclosure as I am thinking you know I think this Facial hair on my face is probably three or four days old. You know when I shave? Every time I take a shower. What does that mean? Well, as I talk around to different people who are sequestered at home and don't go out in public, don't go to work, don't do whatever, showering becomes a little less frequent. Why do I bring this up? I bring this up because... Well, something triggered it. I was looking at the comments from the euthanization video, and somebody said the whole reason 
that I got stung so much and that the bees were so nasty is because I was wearing cologne. One of them even said I was wearing perfume. I am very hygienic when I go out to the bees. It's kind of funny that if I were going to go work bees tomorrow, first thing I would do in the morning is take a shower. And I even have a routine. This is probably TMI, but myself and another beekeeper that I know, only because I recognize the odor of the soap, use the same brand. Dial Gold Soap. It's the one for me. It's like a major degreaser. <laughs> it really cleans you. And it smells good to me. And I have learned that if I stick with that soap, it doesn't bother the bees. They don't seem to be uh, a problem with that. Uh, the reason I raise this is because not too long ago, Sharon bought some new soaps from someone who had spe special smelly... One of them got into my shower, and I was taking a shower the other day, thinking to myself, hmm, this is not a good idea. This soap really smells like cologne. And the bells went off saying, if I'm going to go work bees this afternoon, this is not a good odor to have on myself. So I immediately switched my soap and took that one out of my shower and I don't keep it there. Now, is it comfortable to talk to you about body odor and all this other stuff? No, it's kind of an awkward topic. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is I feel like a public service announcement is you should be really careful about this stuff and recognize what you're using. If I happen to run out of dial gold soap, I might switch to ivory snow, ivory soap. And my third fallback is, well, I don't have a third fallback. I don't do that. But pay attention to what you're wearing and what you're doing. And in these times of COVID, remember that if you're not showering all the time, your bees are highly, highly sensitive to odors. And a little bit odiferous is not a good idea. And if they tend to be a little nasty, mm, maybe it's because you need to scrub down a little bit. So public service announcement, a shower is a wonderful thing. Okay, now that I've got that odd topic out of the way, let's go ahead and move along to the next roundtable. Roundtable number seven, call this one Mighty Quinn. Starting 34th, he hails from Wires Cave, Virginia, piloting the Starcom Racing, Ashurst Honey Company, Mountain Lock Chevrolet. Here's Quinn Alf. <sighs> Last roundtable for this go-round. I had to sneak this one in here because it mixes two of my passions in a passing kind of way. NASCAR Racing has what I'll politely call field filler teams. These are teams that have found a business model that allows them to field a car in NASCAR, but due to their extensive budgeting required, they're usually not that competitive, and they just ride around in the back of the field, and sometimes they're laps down shortly after the race and finish laps down, never competitive. There used to be teams who did this business model who parked their cars shortly after the race started so they didn't have to spend money on fuel and tires. But now NASCAR pays them enough money to keep going. Now these teams are out there because sometimes drivers coming up from the lower ranks can get in these cars and outperform their abilities, or the car's ability, 
and therefore they showcase their talent. Now one such team, Star Com Racing, fields the number 00 car piloted by Quinn Houff. Quinn's not a marquee driver in NASCAR, but as it is with any driver that ends up somewhere in that field, he's likely an accomplished driver for the region he hails from. Quinn Houff, he comes from the super competitive area around Virginia and North Carolina, which is the home, some may say, of NASCAR. What does this have to do with beekeeping, you ask? We'll get to that. I spent a moment talking about the dynamics to explain that an opportunity comes with this field filler dynamic. It's expensive to go racing, and especially NASCAR. Sponsors spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, and sometimes millions, to purchase an ad on the race car. And if you don't know it, certain positions on the car simply cost more because they garner more views. The space behind the rear wheel on the quarter panel and the hood are the highest price. Most companies that do this find a benefit from sponsoring the car for advertising through TV shots during the race. The four-hour race, three-hour race, shows the car multiple times. And think about what they pay to have run an ad on TV. And if you have the right team and your driver is competitive, they're on TV for hours at a time. That's a pretty good cost-return benefit. Problem is, getting on the teams that run out front will lead you to sticker shock. They pay a huge amount of money. But with the smaller teams, there's an opportunity to get a name on a car at NASCAR that's less costly. And you'll, you get the views at the racetrack, you get the TV time, you get the advertising for your company to say that you get to put cars in your ads and things like that. And some companies find the benefit for that. And such was the case, and now I'm getting to the point, for the Ashurst American Honey Company. Earlier this year, Quinn drove the yellow and black, presumably honeybee colored themed car. I don't know if that was on purpose. At Phoenix Raceway, Ashurst was what they call a primary sponsor as they had the premier location for their decals on the rear quarter panel of the car. The Ashurst Honey Company is located in El Centro, California, and their website shows a little bit of pride in explaining that they are a third-generation family-owned national honey supplier. I find that dynamic that they somehow decided to enter into this advertising campaign, and I wonder how it turned out for them. Now, Quinn is one of those cars out there making laps, but he's just not competitive. In fact, Recently, some drivers on the NASCAR circuit are taking jabs at his less-than-stellar awareness as a backmarker and, frankly, accusing him of mm, getting in the way. Ironically, this has put some focus on the race team, and as they say, all advertising, good or bad, is good advertising. So some of his sponsors are getting additional shots on TV for the broadcast because every time the leaders, backmarkers, um, get lapped, 
they've been showing this double zero car. And it's had more eyeballs on the car. As to Ashurst, I find that when sponsors, sponsorships like this happen, someone knows someone who knows someone that asks if there might be a possibility to try a sponsorship and the next thing you know, the Ashurst people give it a try to see if it might work out. Sometimes it's amazingly effective and sometimes you never see the sponsor again. As to that race, perhaps Ashurst did get some TV coverage because apparently Quinn retired early from the race after an accident on lap 208 of 316. Being a race fan, I will tell you at minimum, Carr was likely shown on TV and had a number of ad exposures because of the fact that, you know, he caused a caution and they would show the car getting towed in or whatever occurred there. And not for nothing, tens of thousands of people, because it was pre-COVID, saw that car from the stands in Phoenix. Me, I've been looking for a diecast of that car because I think it would be cool to have a race car with a honey company on the side of it to add my shelf. <laughs> Ashurst, if you're listening, score your campaign investment as still working even months after your car has left the speedway because I, here I am talking about it. I'll have a link to the Ashurst Honey Company and also an image of the car in the show notes if you want to take a look at what it looked like. So now we've reached, I don't know, midway point. We're going to head into the front of the book, which is the back of the book, which is full reverse. Topic number one, hygroscopic. We harvest start our hunting for the fall season, and as promised in the previous episode, we posted the quote-unquote comprehensive how-to harvest honey video that I talked about and that I was in the process of producing onto the Northwest YouTube channel. YouTube.com slash NWNJPA. In the opening of that video and throughout the video, I made mention of a phenomenon that is present in honey harvesting having to do with the properties of honey and that it's hygroscopic. Kevin moment. I got to admit that I do not like to say that word. There's certain words that just feel funny in your mouth. My mouth suffers sometimes, especially tonight. I have such a scratchy throat when trying to pronounce certain words because I just can't get the sound. Maybe it's because I was born with a high palate. Uh, yeah, again, too much information. Let me come back to center, Kevin. Hygroscopic starts with a high, H-Y, but it's pronounced in the beginning like high. Hi, how you doing? Hi. Maybe it's the transition of the I in high to the low-level growl of grow-scopic that follows. Whatever the case, I don't like the word, damn it. <laughs> I feel better getting that off my chest because I'm in pain. And I want you to know that every time I say it in the middle of this thing, and especially in the video, I have to focus on trying to say the word every time. i got to get past it. End of Kevin moment. Hygroscopic. It means tending to absorb 
moisture from the air. Honey. Honey. It's hygroscopic. So it stands to reason that if you have to test your honey and protect it if it's in the open, especially on humid days. So here I'm saying, if you're harvesting and you got your honey operation running all day on a super humid today, today was 80 something, 85% humidity, it stands the risk of getting wet or said differently, it will absorb too much moisture. There are guidelines for beekeepers as to where the moisture level becomes a problem for the honey that you are bottling. I use a benchmark set by our honey judging rules, as I think there's a lot of leeway about what people think as it relates to honey moisture ranges. And I just think if you're going to be judged on honey, then that's a gold standard. So here's the way it works. If the analytical moisture content is between 15.5 to 17% moisture, in the honey scoring you get 20 points, best of the best. If it's between 17.1 to 18%, you get 18 points, a little bit knocked off. If it's between 18.1 and 18.6%, meaning it's getting higher in moisture, you get 15 points. That'll get you by, but it's not as good as the first one. And then if it's greater than 18.6, you get nada, zero points. I would hope that we could extrapolate this to mean that the ideal honey moisture content level is 17% or lower and 15% moisture, which is the first range, 15 to 17%, 15% is quote unquote better, the best. And what I mean by that is if you get closer to 17%, the more you head into the unwanted range, and then higher than that, you're starting to flirt with too much moisture content. If you paid attention to those ranges, and I know you can't see them, but I'm looking at them, 17% were good if it's below that. But we had that gray area. 17 to 18.6 is the gray area. It's not necessarily bad, but in some cases it's flirting with too much moisture. Let's play pretend that you take your reading and it's in the high area of that gray area. Or it even exceeds 18.6%. What could happen? You hear all this moisture, but what's the, what's the bad side effect? Honey, regularly, is shelf-stable forever. Yes, forever. Never goes bad. Never, that is, unless it is handled improperly and it's left out too long to absorb moisture or it had too much moisture to begin with. So now that we have a sense of these ranges, what's good, what's not good, what should we do to make sure we're good in the honey that we're harvesting and the way that we're harvesting it? Well, the simplest, shortest answer is just harvest honey that is capped. Listen, if the bees capped it, it's good to go and you could bank on that. 
So that makes it pretty simple, but of course, life is not simple. What if you pluck a frame out of the honey super that you're harvesting and some of the cells are not finished? Is it harvestable? Before I answer that, I want to discuss motive. As beekeepers, we personally are not in it strictly for the honey. We're not all honey producers. We don't all sell honey for profit. And in our case, it's just a hobby. So don't get me wrong. We, the Englands, want fresh honey for our cupboards, but we're not looking to eke out every last drop for some agenda. For us, it's easier to look at a frame that has some uncapped cells, not quite there yet, and put that frame back. But for others with different motives, and I'm not inferring nefarious, as there's practical reasons to consider harvesting frames with open cells, they wish to make a value-based decision. So now you're holding a frame in your hand and you have some open cells. What do you do with it? Some simply use an old beekeeper's test that is often recommended. And it goes a little something like this. Kevin moment. That's such a soft lead in to start singing a famous song, but nothing comes to mind right now. So count yourself fortunate. It's <laughs> all something like this. You take your frame. You turn it with the side that has the open cells towards the earth and you give it a shake. If when you stop on your downward thrust and no wet nectar comes out of the frame and falls upon the earth, it's good enough. This is an old beekeeper trick to tell you whether your frame is dry enough. The theory of this is that if the liquid is cured enough to be honey, then it will have a thick viscosity and withstand the force exerted to make it drip out of the cell. Thereby, you can assume that if it didn't drip, the percentages are good because low percentage honey has high viscosity and all is right with the world, it's not going to drip out of the frame. I don't teach this method. For me, no. I don't like it. In fact, I find this method disdainful. First off, you can almost just look at the liquid in the cell and tell the same thing that the test provides. More on this in a moment. And secondly, damn, what a waste. Do you realize how much time and labor went into all the foragers that produced that nectar in there and you just wantonly wasted it. This is one of the top, ultimate, loathsome things a beekeeper can do in homage to their honeybees. And I get chapped when this method is taught. But that's a personal thing for me. So what do you do instead? Two options. First one is the best option. You're a beekeeper, and there will be so many times where the proper tool for the job will come to be, and you should invest in a refractometer, it's a sound purchase. They're about 20 bucks, and everyone, everyone will have a skill to use this tool properly. Take a drop of honey, put it on the sensor, look through the scope, take a reading. There'll be a stark blue line show up in the gauge and tell you the honey's moisture percentage. $20. Stupid simple to use.
That doesn't always mean that they'll be one handier. You're in control of your destiny. Maybe you're over helping a friend and you're harvesting their honey for them. And you don't have one. So option number two, observation. You forget to bring a refractometer or they don't have one. Look at the liquid in the cell. In time, you will come to know that stored nectar that has been transformed to honey. It looks glassy, shiny, and it has a marble-like appearance when it's cured in the cell. It looks like a little black glass orb, highly reflective surface, and it shines like a gem. The opposite of that is nectar, which looks like colored water sitting in the cell. And that if you turn the cell over, it would pour out. It's obvious to look at these and tell that difference. Another thing you could do to test it, even if you're not a beekeeper, you are attuned to the consistency of honey. Everybody's eating honey and sees how it pours out of the jar. It's really thick and has a lot of viscosity. If you take a toothpick or some implement and you put it in a cell, it will move around in there and come out with the viscosity of honey. If you prod at it and it's like a thick motor oil and it adheres to the implement of choice that you're using, you got it. Another thing that you should know if you're looking observationally is cured honey sits lower down in the cell. Let's pretend for a moment, just for illustrative purposes, that a cell is an inch deep. When the bees put nectar in the cell, it would be three-quarter to fully full, right up to the top edge. But when they dry that nectar and remove all the water, it shrinks down to a half inch. So those terms don't make any sense because cells aren't an inch deep, but half full is honey. Full full to the brim is nectar. So nectar can fill the interior of the cup all the way up or at least three-quarters of the way. Honey typically settles somewhere between half and three-quarter mark. Look with your eyes, trust your judgment, given whatever visual clues. The catalyst for this topic centered on having a chance in this forum to elaborate on making decisions of open cells. I could never go into this amount of detail, what I just described, on the video. So if you watch the video, you'll get the Reader's Digest version, but here I've given you more detail on that. And I'm happy to have a forum in the podcast to be able to do that. In a related way, I wanted to circle back to an email I received from listener Paul Penbianco. Hopefully, Paul, I pronounce your last name well enough to be recognizable, that you know I'm talking about you, but thanks for the email. Paul hails from Long Island, New York, and wrote in about some honey that he had in storage that, when measured, had a percentage of 17%. There was one condition that could have contributed to that. As he shared, the honey was crystallized. He described it as the consistency of a bucket of spackle. And I believe he did have his honey stored in buckets. And when he opened it up, he found it to be 17%. If I remember the story right of reading the email, it was a while back. In my travels, I came across an interesting tidbit that is outlined 
in the Alton J. Dice method of creamed honey production that explains some of this. Elton is commonly contributed to, attributed, I'm not sure I used the right word there, to the copyright called the Dice Method. Dice was affiliated with Cornell, and he outlined the approach for producing creamed honey in a manner that made it smooth, and also kept it from a common occurrence, fermentation. In his method, he calls for you to raise the honey to 150 degrees Fahrenheit for 15 minutes. Primarily, this is so it kills any yeasts that could ferment, but it also helps to break down large crystals in honey. Dice documented that the constituents in honey, specifically the dextrose hydrate components of sugar, have much to do with the formation of crystals in honey and if they are smaller or coarser when your honey crystallizes overall. So key to crystal formation is this dextrose hydrate. More importantly, the act of crystallization changes the makeup of the honey and in a separate paper from the full one that Dice described the Dice method of creating creamed honey, this one was called Fermentation and Crystallization of Honey. And by the way, it was published in 1932. In that bulletin, it states, quote, Honey in granulated form ferments more readily than does liquid honey whether or not the honey has been heated to keep it liquid, end quote. So why would that be? Why would granulated honey have more option for fermentation? Paper gives a technical explanation, bit of a technical explanation for this, quote, the explanation of more ready fermentation of granulated honeys lie in the fact that when the dextrose hydrate crystals are formed in the honey, the liquid phase of the honey has a higher water content than the entire honey had while it was still liquid, end quote. Hmm, what did that mean? When I studied this for my master beekeeper's notes, I wrote it out in layman's terms, and I took it to mean that the formulation of crystals, remember you're making a crystallized honey throughout, ends up expressing trapped moisture. It seems as the crystals form, layman's terms, they squeeze out any of the locked-in moisture, and that turns up in the way that he just expressed in that quote. Higher detectable water content. So going back to Paul's situation, that may explain why his crystallized honey had higher moisture reading, because it all crystallized, but was not fermenting. If I'm being honest, I came across this knowledge because I too had the problem, which is why I looked it up from my master beekeeper notes. I made creamed honey years earlier. And in time, my jars on the shelf separated. This is before I knew about the dice method. Now, what I first thought was that the top of the crystallized honey melted in some way in my storage. 
Somehow the jar got hot and the top of the jar turned back to liquid. But, you know, that never made any sense because it was stored in the basement and it never got anywhere near the temperature to melt honey. The telltale sign to look for something else for me was that the honey on the top turned a touch amber in color. And while it was still sweet, when I opened the jar, it had a touch of a sour, fermented note to it on the tongue. So forensically what happened is I did not heat my honey to kill the yeasts. The crystallization of the creamed honey unlocked the water inside, as the paper described, and the moister honey, the liquidy stuff, started to ferment because it was wetter than the percentage allowed. Incidentally, after learning what was going on, I didn't concern myself with eating that honey, and I ate it before it got too long. It was fine, because, you know, fermented honey, fermented honey, is mead, <laughs> which is fine in its own realm. Uh, I guess I should not be suggesting you to eat spoiled honey. Be careful with that. But I knew that that honey wasn't turned. Okay, let me get out of that. If I come back to what Paul wrote in his email, it might be easy to suggest that that's what happened. And if he takes that into consideration, remember, good, 100% of the points, 20 points in our mark, was 15.5 to 17%. If he's sitting at 17% and he sent that in to be judged, he'd get his full marks. He'd be okay. And if he left it a little bit longer in that pail, maybe the moisture content is not going to go up that much if it's all crystallized. But if there was some, and there was a little bit of wiggle room, then he might venture into that gray area of 17.1% to 18.6%, but he still had headroom to grow. I would like to hope that it ends there, but there's one more case to consider. What if you measured open in a frame that is uncapped and it was in the gray area? Did that make any sense? I have frames with cells that are open and I measured it and it turned out to be 17.1 to 18.6%. Can I take that and mix it with a pail or other honey that was capped that had lower percentage and play the odds backward? Take a high percentage honey, mix it with a low percentage honey and end up somewhere in the middle and be in the safe zone. I don't know. I don't actually know the answer to that. I would think common sense would tell me that would be okay. It's the overall moisture that matters, which is why sometimes the recommendation is when you look at a face of a frame and 90% of it is covered and 10% of it is open, in the grand scheme of things, that's not going to matter because that little bit of wet, possible wet honey, is going to get compensated by the dry honey that was capped. I think the blended percentage would be okay. And it's the ultimate percentage of moisture that matters. Again, I don't know. Maybe this is one of those things that someone like um, Grant Stiles would be able to tell me the answer. So I'll have to put it on a note to ask him that. I still think 
that that's doable because I know of other things that happen. So people take their honey that's wet, they lock it in a room, and they put a dehumidifier in there, and they dry it out, or they run fans to dry it out. So, yeah, my guess is you can dry out honey, and then once you get it down to the percentage, as long as you close it out and it wasn't spoiled to begin with, you're good to go. But you know what? Uh, simply avoid that altogether. <laughs> That's why I can't speak to these practices, because I don't do that stuff. I have one last tidbit to throw in, and it'll bake your noodle. This drives some people crazy sometimes, and I have seen this. Let's consider a situation where you have a capped frame. And the bees capped it, so it's going to be good, right? The short answer is yes. Yes, the bees capped it, it's fine. But sometimes the readings are going to lie. What I mean by this is sometimes you could take honey. Honey that's capped and under a cell capped and you get a high moisture count reading the truth is it doesn't mean it's bad in fact the opposite is true the percentages are pretty much universal for that gauge in the honey contest but you know there's the diversity of nature there are in fact some plant sources that yield nectar that bees cap at a higher percentage it's wetter, if that's a concept. You can harvest a complete frame of honey that was capped and tested only to find out that the refractometer showed 18% or more. So I just have to say that these are rare, but they sometimes happen. I have experienced wet honey one time in my years. 99% of the time, the typical readings for me are 14.5 to 15.5%. And almost universally, what we harvest comes in between those two marks. Now, we didn't get 18% plus, but there was a time when we harvested honey not too long ago, right out from under the capping, and the reading was 17%. And yes, the refractometer was calibrated. It was honey harvested in low humidity, bottled with no lag, and sitting in a place that was dry. I've seen it with my own eyes. In these cases, if you get those ratings that are high, but it was capped honey, 100%, it's all good. My rule of thumb would be if the bees capped it, you're fine. And no reading from a refractometer would dissuade me from bottling it. So isn't it interesting how nature throws us some curveballs somehow? I highly recommend that every beekeeper who does honey read somewhere in their lifetime about the dice method for creamed honey. And I'll throw in as a bonus in the show notes the bulletin from Cornell that expresses crystallization leads to higher moisture content. It's worth to read. Before I move on to topic number two, hey Paul, thanks for that email. I really appreciate the notes and hope that was helpful to you. Topic number two, I call this one NICO Part 2. In episode 177, I started in on some impressions of our queen-rearing activities this year with the NICO system. 
and I said I would come back in a future episode, and here I am, to share some additional details. Specifically, I wanted to share some impressions of using a genuine NICO system versus a knockoff. Now, we've had a full year since our 2019 attempt at rearing queens to plan, and both of us were kind of squishy on the NICO device, but for some reason, I harbor a notion that if you could unlock its secrets, it might be a really good way to go. Specifically, because I like to try to help new beekeepers find their way in the world, I think it would be approachable for queen rearing because it's a graphless system. So in discussing that with Bob, we both agreed that we would give it another run this year. In doing the backstory research for this, one thing I saw anecdotally in B-Source Forum and other places was that the true NICO device was an imperative and that knockoffs don't work. No real explanation for that, just conjecture to it. So given that we were going to give this again and that I was originally intending to go down the same, uh, didn't, didn't know this, same path that Bob did, which was to buy a less expensive, equally appearing knockoff version. I changed my mind last minute and bought a genuine Nyko. So when I'm recounting, as I will, that the Nyko worked better, I'm not trying to say I'm smarter than Bob. What I'm trying to say here is that Bob and I set our objectives, and one of the objectives after we discussed this, and I said to him, you know, people keep saying this NICO thing is actually better than the knockoffs. What if we compare them and tried to learn what the difference was? We both agreed that would be a good plan. Ultimately, if that proves to be true, then Bob didn't make a wise decision. But how do you know? Till you test it. So when I recount that one performed better, and that Bob and I took a different approach. It's not a one-upsman thing. It's us working independently and then discover that as we do things as individuals, because this is not the only instance of this, um, we sometimes learn by contrasting our experiences which way is better. And ultimately, the payoff is just like this episode and the topic I'm going to discuss we get to relay this information because both of us do a lot of beekeeping trainer of this is why something is better. So I had to put that out there before I came through to the actual, you know, what, what did we learn type stuff. So as you would gather um, by the lead in, we found some differences. They're subtle, but when you look at the devices side by side, except for some markings, slight color variations, they look practically identical. There is one place they do differ, and it's with the most important element of the cartridge itself, the cell cup design. This is the core part of the device, because it's ultimately the vessel that the queen lays her egg in and that the larva transforms in and that the queen grows in when they cap the cell. Right off the bat, lead with the most important thing, the knockoff device cell cups seemed to be the same dimension, but they differed in design and 
as odd as this distinction is, it made a big difference. So describing the two, you'll figure out where the slight is. And you really have to study them to know, because it's almost at the subatomic level. Not really. But the knockoff cup has a relatively smooth bottom. And while the appearance of the plastic is fairly see-through, there's some striations in the plastic that create this hash stripe variation when you look at it. If you're old enough like me, you've seen old-fashioned glass, and it looks a little wavy. It's something like that. The true Nyko cup, plastic cup, it has a distinctive outer ridge on the bottom of the cup. And then the plastic shallows down some, only return to a gradual slope up to the center. So another way to say this is when you're looking at the bottom of the cup, it has a slight depression. In the center of that slight depression, there's a distinct circular bump, sort of a, a nipple left over from the manufacturing process. But to be clear, the plastic itself is crystal clear, has no striations in it. You would think that the concave swale and nipple would provide detrimental to the process because in practice, when you're using the vise, you're looking through the bottom of the cup to see what the queen deposited in the back of the cell, or more specifically, inside the cup, right, from the other side. So in the end, why was the Nyko better? The plastic on the knockoff was a bit cloudy in comparison. And in use, the clear Nyko material made it much easier to see what was inside. If there was an egg in the cup, in the Nyko one, it was clear as day. If there was an egg in the knockoff, you could see it, but the contrast was apparent, and we both agreed that the Nyko cup was superior for that task. What's actually in the cell? What did the queen provide for you? The funny thing is, we probably would not have discovered that if it wasn't for serendipity. Because Bob used his device last year, he was short on cups. And I, because mine was brand new, I had some spares. So prior to deploying the two devices we used, he took some of my cups to fill out his lower rows. It was obvious when we pulled the cassettes out of the hive and held it up in the light, what the difference was from the cups that I just described. So there's another piece to the cup design, and it has to do with the actual cartridge itself. Now I'm not clear that I'm going to do a good job at explaining this, but I'll do my best. There's two sides to this cartridge. On the one side, there's an embossed honeycomb pattern that's supposed to look like honeycomb. And every once in a while, the actual cell pattern, it almost looks like plastic foundation without any wax built out. That's the pattern it has. But you can imagine that they want the queen to lay in the cups that are on the opposite side. So there's a hole, like every third one, if I remember right. So you put the queen under glass, it's plastic, and she runs around on this fake comb, which is made of plastic, and there's holes, and because she wants to lay eggs, she lays in these cups. 
So if you flip the cassette over, now you're looking at the other side, away from the queen. You obviously see depressions, and they are in the form of bumps universally across the back. And it's these bumps that you take your cell cup and you stick it down over and fasten it. And then when it comes time to harvest the egg, you pluck the cup off and put it on the bar. On the true Nyko device, the genuine one, all of these bumps are uniform. They're the same height, they're the same dimension, they have the same slope, and the hole is the exact same size, and the hole is flat, and the profile is well-engineered. If you look at the other one, the knockoff, the knockoff, not the knockoff, <laughs> that was funny, you see that the manufacturing is not as tight. It's awful, actually. Some of the cups have the wrong slope, they're distorted, the hole is oblong, the side on one side is tapered down and the hole is uh, angled down. The height of the actual hole by which the queen is coming through on the other side is higher on some, lower on others. It's very clear that this is a key distinction in the knockoff. So why does this matter? It matters because when you take the cup from the other side and you stick it down over the base of that cell, the base of the cup, the inside floor, is supposed to be flush with the hole on the other side to become the base of the cell where the queen lays the egg. Now imagine in the Nyko device with the perfect height, perfect dimension, perfect slope, round circles, and you put the cup down, it mates up perfectly. It's fit like a glove. But on the other one, the cups, one, don't lock into the cartridge very well because they're not good tolerance. And the floor floats above the hole, doesn't mate up to the hole, it's off to the side of the hole. And this makes a difference because the bees want the cup sealed. So the workers that are in there with the queen come through the cell from the other side and they draw wax along the bottom to seal the gaps. They don't like the gaps. And then what happens is if the queen bothers to lay in those knockoff cells, when you pluck that out and you put it on the bar, our experience is it got rejected in the queen builder. In the cell builder where you tried to raise your queen on the bar. So this is a big deal. This is a big deal. The knockoff ones don't work. So all those people who said, buy a Nyko device that matters, but never explain why, I think that's the answer. I've now <laughs> unlocked that part of it. And I think that's really important. There's other things that came from those cups. Fit and finish. If you take the cup, it has a little impression on the cassette. Now I'm talking about the knockoff. And you slide it down. The tolerance of the outside diameter of the, the cup is supposed to lock it in. A lot of times what we found when we pulled bobs out is that the cups were falling off or were loose. Now the plastic covering that uh, holds all the cups in play would prevent the cup from coming off, but the cups shook loose. So if you take all these little pieces, and there's more to it, but I think I'm running long, so I won't go too crazy about it. Um, these are really 
key differences and have a direct impact on your success or failure and whether the worker bees that you supply the cups with royal jelly and material are actually going to convert to a queen. Your success rate for all the time you spend, it makes a difference by the right ones. Now, the question lies, could you buy genuine Nyko cups and put them on a knockoff and get some results? I'd ask you why. If you're going to bother going through all this. Now, there's one other thing about the dimension of the cups. If you take the knockoff cups for the brand that Bob had, I don't know if they're all like this, but this one was. The profile of the cup was a straight downside, a curve, and a flat bottom, and a curve, and it's... So it was like a flat-bottomed U. The bottom was flat, flat. If you look at the profile inside the Nyko, it was... A flat side, a curve, a flat, and then as I described earlier, that recess indentation to the nipple and so on, the outside diameter had a specific profile. I don't know why that is, but my speculation is the design of the cup was meant to sit across the plastic and hold it in tight in the cartridge. But it's the inside of the Nyko cup that's different. The inside of the Nyko cup comes down straight and then it has a curve all the way through the bottom and it goes back up straight. The bottom of the cup is round. It's not straight, curve, flat, curve, straight. It's round. And when you take that cup and you set it down over the nipple from the Nyko uh, cell protruding from the other side, it mates up properly. That's why I think if you took a Nyko cup and put it on a knockoff, maybe it would work better. So at minimum, if you owned one of these knockoff ones, do yourself a favor and at least buy Nyko cups to put on your cartridge. So there were a couple other things we learned about timing and stuff, but as we're learning, and I think this might take us a year or two, maybe three, to use the device We'll get better at it, and I'll feel more comfortable about talking about different approaches. I'm also going to talk just a smidge about the NICO outcomes in the local hive report, which is just about to come up. So NICO Queen Rearing Devices 2020. Uh, we're so excited about the success we had this year and what we learned. It's all you could ask for as far as we're concerned. Because that's what we want. And ultimately, I hope to get to a point where I'm zen enough and Bob is zen enough with those devices to be able to explain to people how to use them successfully and have good instructions for it. So stay tuned to NICO over the next couple of years. Every queen rearing season will probably come back and give further updates. So this is going to sound really strange, but to the local hive report. A local hive report for this episode, I really don't have a lot to report about my local apiary. I just haven't been out there. I put formic acid on the hives, let it run its two weeks, and then, as you heard from the weekend activities and some other stuff going on, I haven't been out there. Honestly, my bees can stay put for a little bit, but this week, 
uh, and speaking with Bob Kloss, we have some more queen rearing things to tie up. And I have to go out and do a couple things with my hive. Talking about queen rearing, out of the Nyko packages, we were, uh, out of my cassette, we got eight. Out of Bob's cassette, I think we got four successful takes. We both did 12 apiece. So eight out of 12, not full queens. That's a story unto itself. I split the nasty hive and I put queen cells in it. And I think I talked about that last time. We went and checked. Zero for seven. It was an awful day, Saturday, <laughs> to go into the bee yard, check all those, and find out that none of the queens took. What we found is every one of the queen cells were torn down. We're at a loss to explain it, like we exactly know what happened, but we have our hypothesis. The bees that I used in all of the nukes that we put in the mating yard all came from the origin of the nasty hive, which I can't, didn't get it tested, so I can't say it was Africanized, but it could have had possible African genetics. The one thing I learned from the commentary from people who looked at that hive video is that it's very hard to requeen a hive that has African genetics in the background. And the only plausible thing that that uh, Bob and I can think of at this point is they rejected all those queens because the genetics did not match the workers in the hive. The funny thing about it is in probably five of the seven hives that we put queen capped queen cells in, we noticed that they built queen cells. They had some brood available to them and there were queen cells throughout. Now they're all capped, and we have to figure out what we're going to do with these hives. The one thing that we saw, which we're scratching our head, which means there could be an alternative, which is why we're not ready to declare, is that one of the queen cups that we pulled out that was torn down looked like it had a larva in it. And one of the things we noticed with the Nyko queen rearing system was that some of the bees for whatever reason, seemed to cap the larva way quicker than typical biology would call. In other words, we took a cup out of the NICO device, put it in the bar, put it in the cell builder, and they were working on feeding a larva and growing it, and on day three, they capped it, meaning full peanut-shaped cap. That's really strange. It's not supposed to happen that quickly. We both observed this. We weren't sure what to make of it, but we just let it roll. Now that we saw one of those cups and it had what looked like larva material in it, but no pupa, it's possible that the bees capped it too early and it never really grew into a queen. We're not sure. And there's no way for us to really definitively forensic that. So this is our plan. We went back and grafted using Chinese grafting tools, the style Chinese grafting tool. We grafted larva and we're raising queens and we have a couple more that are now 
capped queen cells. We're going to hatch a couple of those, or emerge, is the proper term, and put them in a queen cage and put them on those hives and see if the bees act aggressively against them. We're hoping, we're praying, fingers crossed, that that's not going to be the case and that they'll possibly accept those queens, especially if we make them queenless, which is what we're going to do this week in anticipation of giving them emerged queens by the weekend. So jury's still out as to whether we can rescue those hives. I think, and part of the conversation in logic is, if those hives still have some sort of Africanized genetics or they won't accept the queen of our taking, let's shake them out in the yard. <laughs> I'm not going to mess with them. That's just talking out loud. We've got the week to ponder what's going to happen. But from a queen-rearing standpoint, some of the queens that we put in those non-aggressive hive genetic-sourced bees, they took fine. So we had five or six starter colonies that are in queen castles or nukes that were rearing queens and they were successfully mated and were good to go. So we continue our plan. I want to go out maybe this weekend and I was thinking actually I have so many days to take off from work and we're not going anywhere that I might just take a vacation or do day or two next week and go work my bees in the yard, go through all my hives, do my checks after the Formic Pro and see how things are going. And in that context, I'll figure out what the next actions are in my bee yard. One of the things that I want to do is I transported the frames for my top bar hive out to get mated and it's sitting in, I had to take it away and it's sitting in the mentoring yard for Northwest. I want to bring that hive home, but what happened is of the six top bar frames that were sitting in a regular Langstroth nuke, one of them broke. It's all young, fresh comb, and it didn't have support. So I devised of a method where I'm going to take styrofoam peanuts, and I'm going to go there, pull all the frames out, dump styrofoam peanuts in the bottom of the hive, and then put the frames back with the bees on them and let them nestle down into the styrofoam and then put it in my truck and bring it home. And when I get home, I'll obviously discard the styrofoam and I'll take those frames out and put them in my top bar hive. So how about that for an ingenious idea that I'm plotting? So there's, uh, you know, odds and ends for summer. Just trying to make sure I'm going to feed my bees if they need it. And I'm going to start on the plan to build out these nukes for overwintering. And hopefully we'll have strong, thriving production colonies for spring. So local hive report, just kind of status quo, low activity. Still a little bit of forage coming in right now. I see the bees are still active. Hives are heavy. They look good. I'm hoping that Formic Pro didn't do any damage to them, but I'll find out when I go in. And, you know, it's typical late spring, early summer uh, time period. We'll be kicking off our managed mentoring program, going out to visit some beekeepers. So it'll be interesting to see what other people's hives look like. We're going to do it in a very COVID careful way. And it's July and August. Time to make sure that mites don't overtake your hives. And 
I think I'm ahead of the curve this year, which is great. So local hive report, check. All good. Time to go to closing comments. Just a couple things to close out the episode. Just thinking about uh, last minute thoughts rolling around in my head. This past Saturday, after we finished that discovery of no queen cells took in those nasty hives, Bob and I took a run up to my twin brother's house. He and his wife are looking after a hive as fledgling new beekeepers. And we wanted to do a hive inspection, make sure the hive was queen right. It is. And we wanted to do a mite check, so we got down into the brood area, took a sample, and found, I think, one mite in the sample. While we were doing the sample, I used the new bee collector device that I found in bee culture and built my own version of. I think I talked about it in the last episode. I made one from Bob, and Bob brought his. And I've discovered that the thing is too narrow. So I'm going to take it apart and tweak it a little bit. That's what happens when you build prototype devices. You try them, test them, see whether they work or not. We used a hive mover to move the hive and the table it was sitting on from the middle of the yard to the enclosure. Every time you do a beekeeping activity like that, it becomes an interesting adventure. Uh, you can picture us wearing shorts <laughs> some of the bees being loose and the inevitable conclusion that, you know, some of us got stung. Uh, Bob, Keith, and myself got stung, but Karina, who was hanging out, was the sole survivor. She claimed that the girls like her too much to sing her. <laughs> so we all got stung at least once or a couple of times. But, you know, um, boys will be boys. So it's fun to have Keith as a beekeeper get all these crazy questions. And to that end, trying to convince him that uh, while he's still young and impressionable, he and Karina might be able to help me with uh, getting started in the beekeeping series that I've been envisioning. So we'll see if that pans out. Uh, yeah, you know, rather than ramble, I think I'll just shut it down. I do appreciate you listening and hope you come back for the next one. But it's time to say sayonara. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next time on the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast.